Here's something IHI's president and CEO Derek Feely said recently about patient safety, and I'm paraphrasing just a bit. Quote, we need to get safety and quality back to our top priority. And here's something IHI's President Emeritus Don Berwick said not long ago about safety as well. We don't have the right to say we're done or we're moving on to something else. This is a burden of the pursuit of excellence and the work we will do for the rest of our lives and the lives that follow us. Derek and Don also both say we're at some sort of inflection point with making healthcare safer. Do you agree? We're going to dive into these issues as part of a broader discussion of where we've landed with patient safety in 2017 and what comes next on this edition of WIHI. And I want to welcome you to WIHI. A reminder, we're an online audio talk show from the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. We come to you live biweekly, and then after that, you can find us on IHI.org and on iTunes. I'm your host and producer, Madge Kaplan, and I'm also IHI's Director of Communications. IHI has a long history of helping organizations deliver better and safer care to patients, which is why we can't help notice that many improvers are now seeking a different sort of assistance, one that re-energizes staff and sustains existing gains and that puts pieces of the puzzle currently represented by way too many metrics and projects, puts them together in a more enduring relational system fashion. The goal is often described as a safety culture and systems of safety that one can never get away from and you wouldn't want to. I've got Derek and Don in the studio to tell you much, much more. First, here's IHI's John Gothier. He's just going to remind you how to take part in the WIHI today. John. All right. Thanks, Madge. Uh, just a few items to point out to help everybody make the most of today's program. Uh, on the right of your screen is our chat window. If you've tuned into WIHI before, you know about the great conversation that takes place in the chat. It's also where you can ask our panelists your questions, so make sure that your questions and comments are directed to all participants when Madge opens up the floor to questions. This allows our panelists and your colleagues on the WebEx to see all questions and comments being shared. Now, there are a few ways that people have connected to WIHI today. If you're logged onto your computer and listening to WIHI by streaming audio coming through speakers or headphones, you'll see a box in the top right-hand corner labeled Audio Broadcast. If you're on a less reliable Internet connection today, we recommend calling in on the phone. If you experience any audio issues, please send a quick message to the host in the chat, but a simple solution to any audio hiccup may be to pause the WebEx audio player and then press play. Also, if you're hoping to get your hands on today's slides, I've provided a direct download link in the chat. Tomorrow they'll be posted at our archive page over at IHI.org slash WIHI, along with today's chat and other helpful articles and resources mentioned by Don and Derek. You can also email info at IHI.org, and they will send them your way. And finally, we're always looking for ways to improve the listener experience here on WIHI. Please take some time after the program to fill out a quick survey and let us know how we've done. Back to you, Mitch. All right. Thanks, John. And we're going to turn to the chat and your questions and comments. At about the halfway point of the show, we do welcome tweeting during and after the program. Thanks for including at the IHI and the hashtag WIHI in your tweet so others can be part of the conversation. Two introductions. Derek Feely is IHI's president and CEO. Prior to joining IHI in 2013, he served as Director General for Health and Social Care in the Scottish Government, and he was Chief Executive of the National Health Service in Scotland, NHS. IHI and NHS Scotland have a rich history of working together and on safety and other issues. I don't know if Derek's current responsibilities rival the Scottish ones, but I do know he's plenty busy. Welcome, Derek. 
Thank you, Madge. Good to be with you. Don Berwick is at Derek's side, as you, I hope, know, is IHI's founding president and CEO, now President Emeritus, a senior fellow, and Don now joins IHI as a board member. Don went to Washington for 18 months during the Obama administration to head up the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, or CMS. His plate is always full, including, and this is just one of many things, serving on the Massachusetts Health Policy Commission, a key part of health reform in Massachusetts. Welcome, Don. Nice to be here, Match. I also can't help resist mentioning that this is the first time. Well, first of all, it's the first time I've had the two of you together in this show. But it's the first time I've had two guests on WHI who've both been honored by Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II for their contributions to the improvement of the NHS. <laughs> and you can read more about that in their bios. I mean, how about that for a coincidence? Uh, okay, let's get going. All right, Don's going to start us off. And... Uh, We've been at this for a while, Don, so you get the uh, wonderful job. Give us, we want to always start getting some grounding with what we've accomplished because a lot has been accomplished and it's out of those, that work, uh, that we of course find ourselves, uh, raising some new important questions. So Don, why don't you, uh, start us off there? Thanks. Uh, thanks, Mike. Well, a lot has been done, uh, a enormous community of effort. I date back, uh, I was thinking back to, you know, any, beginning point, it was 1991 that the Harvard Medical Practice Study appeared that first kind of called out the the number of, the rate of harm to patients uh, stunned everybody. That was 26 years ago. And most of the reactions, I think, were denial. Uh, we then had the terrible incidents like the death of Betsy Lehman at the Dana-Farber, which kind of began to put everybody on alert. And it really was um, the turn of this, this century, the Two Errors Human Report from the Institute of Medicine that I think finally gave a uh, scientific foundation to what's now the safety movement. Uh, that uh, grew and developed. Uh, Derek's leadership in, in uh, Scotland through the decade put Scotland almost in the lead internationally in pursuing safety. Here in the U.S., we had the 100,000 Lives Campaign, the 5 Million Lives Campaign uh, with IHI, Peter Pronovost's work in, in Michigan, uh, the CMS uh, beginning to look at safety. So the surf was up for sure. And um, the Affordable Care Act, um, you know, really, really invested in this through the through the partnership for patients. So it's become it's become known. So, the, you know, three wins. Uh, we know that it happens. We understand the rates of injury to patients are high. We know why it happens. Uh, the science says it's systems, and that, that which is good news because it means we could redesign systems for safety, which is the job. And we know how to change it because we actually have growing number of examples uh, at the project level, at least, of new designs that are far safer. So um, give us a positive score so far. Okay. So where do things start to go astray or maybe migrate in a direction that does have a lot of people talking right now about a reset uh, that might be needed with safety in the U.S. in particular, and perhaps we'll talk a little bit more also about globally what that looks like. Thanks, Don. Reset's badly needed. Uh, you know, it's all a learning process. Um, the National Patient Safety Foundation report, uh, Free from Harm, lays out uh, more than I can in a few minutes about kind of where we ca where we came and where we, where we failed to go, and we'll be seeing that in Derek's presentation, I think. Uh, my own uh, inventory of, I guess I'll say, errors made in the pursuit of safety 
uh, are, are it's a long list. Uh, more most recently, the biggest concern is displacement by cost concerns, uh, country by country, area by area. It's we're talking about money, we're not talking about safety, and there is a connection, but the connection is not being made strategically necessarily, and so safety's fallen off the center of the map for uh, far too many healthcare organizations and leaders. We have an illusion that we've been there, done that. We've we've done a lot on central line infections, ventilated pneumonias, pressure sores, and we're saying, okay, we, we, we're safe now. We, no, we're not. And, and the illusion of completeness is against us. We still over-rely on incentives. Uh, I think I've written widely on this. I may be in small company, but I simply do not believe this is an issue of incentive. I think the workforce wants to be safe, and if they aren't being, it's because they cannot be. And we've got to really be systems thinkers. We have glutted ourselves with metrics. We're choking on safety metrics now, and we've got to solve that. It, it, it isn't right. It, it, it isn't helping people. And we're not displaying or using the ones we have properly. We separated safety from quality. Uh, I'm worried about that. I, again, I may be in small company, but they're not two topics. They're the same topic. When you say safety and quality, it's like saying apples and fruit. Uh, quality is fruit. It's, it's all the components of what makes things good, one of which is safety. But to say we have a safety department and a quality department, which some places do, is it's a structural mistake. It's an intellectual mistake, and it divides the energy that we need united. We remain systems illiterate too much. Uh, that's a word that's pretty edgy, but I believe it. For example, one of the systems principles is, is the, tri- the, the, the defects of hindsight bias. You look at the event and you say, well, now I know the cause because it was a thing before the event. No, it wasn't. The events, the, the, it's, it's coming out of a system of, of errors, and we, we're too simplistic. I think the academic community has frankly not stepped up. Uh, we have too much uh, critique and, and – um, kind of whistleblowing on the academic side, and we haven't developed the sciences the way they need, and I really think it's been a problem. And uh, we we need to bring science back to the safety pursuit. Uh, We know how to solve all of that, Uh, increasing patient voice, uh, reuniting safety and quality as one system, uh, thinking at the system level about improvement of all type, uh, and uh, I think importantly, mapping all of that into professional development. We're still, I think it's still possible to get through medical school today and not have an hour on how to be safe. I, I'm not sure about that, but I'm, I'm, I'm a little worried that still is true, and it's time to end that. Okay. All right. Well, this is one of your many opportunities. Thank you, Don. Uh, folks, to weigh in, of course, we'll get to questions and comments at about the halfway point of the hour, but uh, you just heard, you got kind of an earful there, um, and those are all very, very uh, rich areas for exploration. So any comments people have, please feel free. Um, all right, I want to turn to Derek right now. Uh, if you were fortunate enough to be at IHI's National Forum in Orlando in December, you heard Derek talk about safety, a kind of safety 2.0 or a new safety. And uh, Derek, you're always welcome to comment on anything Don just said, but uh, you decided that it was very, very important to focus on safety. Perhaps tell us why and then get us into some of your ideas right now. Thanks again. Thanks, Madge. And I guess the main reason why I thought it was important to focus on safety, Don has articulated in his um, usual erudite manner. I associate myself with everything that he said. I think he's exactly right in his analysis of where we are in our safety journey. We've made progress. Um, We should celebrate that. Um, But more importantly, I think we should learn from it because we still have work to do. Uh, and I certainly recognize Don, one of Don's early points about prioritization. Uh, and I think we see a lot of data, we see reports that the, the thing that's uppermost on people's minds right now in healthcare leadership is cost, 
uh, and putting safety second is just not going to be sufficient. So before we get into any analysis of what we might do, I think the first thing that we have to accept is uh, safety needs to become, again, our first priority. First, do no harm. Um, But then I think we do have some ideas and we've seen some um, progress around, so what what might, might we do? What might this new horizon on patient safety look like building on that on those successes that Don mentioned using the knowledge that we've gained from making some of those improvements in uh, patient safety what might we what might we do and I've been uh, influenced as I've been thinking about this by a white paper published by Eric Holmnagel and his colleagues who where they talk about this idea of safety too um, and indeed, I borrow my first idea in the, from this uh, safety work, from uh, the, the work of Eric and his colleagues, which is that we need to really change our focus. At the, at the moment, we're spending most of our time um, uh, with some success learning from uh, when things go wrong. So we do root cause analysis, uh, or, and we try and uh, learn from that process. We spend almost no time at all learning from our successes Uh, and uh, so we need to look at the whole curve is what I'm saying and I certainly believe that as a a mea culpa here, as a former healthcare system chief executive I spent a lot of my time at uh, at one end of the performance curve uh, identifying the bad apples Uh, and with hindsight I really wish I'd spent more time tending to the whole orchard Um, because you learn something from uh, our Failures, and we, I'm not, I'm not saying for a second that we should stop learning from what goes wrong. But we need to complement that with a much better understanding of why is it that, you know, so often we deliver excellent care, safe care, to the patients that we serve, and what can we learn from what's going right? So that's my first um, prompt to us: is let's start to learn from. Uh, every incident from the whole curve. And a second thing I've been talking a a, a lot about recently is this idea that um, we need to be more proactive and less responsive. And I I, I borrowed this, uh, you'll see through the slide, I've been looking outside healthcare for some of these solutions. And if you look at how people are thinking about evolving their safety culture in other industries uh, and you honestly plotted the vast majority of healthcare systems on this map. Uh, I, I think if we got to the middle of that progression, we'd, we'd be doing pretty well. That's where our high-performing systems might be. Uh, and that gives us room for improvement. That gives us space to get to, um, to genuinely proactive um, responses to safety challenges, the safety challenges that Don outlined. That gives us a real opportunity to really bake this into our systems. Um, so that m- move towards proactivity, I think, is really important. My, ca- my colleague, Carol Harridan, has a l- lovely way of describing this. I really like Carol's analysis here. because she, What she says is that at the moment we spend a lot of our time um, counting the number of, of times that people fall through the ice. And where we need to move to is measuring the thickness of the ice. Um, so l- let's figure out, um, let's think more about risk 
and uh, and look ahead to some of um, the the guidance we can give people about how to minimise that risk. So uh, a, a shift to proactivity, I think, is the third thing. Is the second thing, Ralph. So the third thing Don already mentioned, and that's this idea of uh, a shift from projects to safety. And so, again, this is not to diminish the importance of the work that we've already done, but we've at IHI, and you can see this in, in the, the next slide in a little bit more detail, we at IHI have been doing some work with Alan Frankel and his colleagues in uh, Safe and Reliable Healthcare on this articulation about what a framework for safe, reliable and effective care might look like. And you can see here we think it has two broad components. One's a cultural component, the second is a learning system component. Uh, And IHI will, will, with Alan's help, lay this out more um, comprehensively in a white paper that will be published just in a couple of weeks' time. So look out for that white paper where we'll really start to explore what what it's going to take for healthcare systems to create safety as a system property. Um, And how do we learn from the learning that we've generated from all of these projects that we've been doing? Incidentally, Madge IHI will also be running a conference in April that will start to talk about uh, how to make progress with a safety framework, how to bring it into implementation. Mm-hmm. Um, the fourth of my six um, thoughts about um, how do we make progress here, again, borrows some learning from other industries. And uh, this is a, a, very specifically about the safety culture piece of our new safety framework. And I, and I really like this um, this thinking that I've borrowed from air travel. Uh, and if you get behind the the website of the curiously named Eurocockpit.be, um, what you'll find is a, a real consensus on the definition of a just culture. So a, a, a clarity that I've seen rarely about exactly what do we mean when we talk about a just culture. Secondly, a set of rights and responsibilities for the folks who work in this system that is extraordinarily clear and concise. And thirdly, getting us into that territory again about um, people's um, proactivity, a, a, a very clear responsibility for detecting weak signals in the system. So the, 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 the rights and responsibilities here are as clearly laid out as I've seen anywhere and we could learn from that in healthcare. I think there's work to be done in, in defining exactly what we mean by a just culture and being much more clear about what people's rights and responsibilities are and about giving them the confidence that they need to report um, errors and potential errors. Uh, number five, and Don touched on this also, no one has more of a stake in patient safety than the patient themselves and frankly I don't think we've done a good enough job in co-producing patient safety Uh, and here's a place where we can learn internationally that our uh, friends at the Canadian Canadian Patient Safety Institute have done some really good work on this I think in a program they call Shift to Safety Uh, and they've done a lot of work about socialising the ideas around patient safety using social media Uh, to uh, campaign about these kind of issues. And then finally, Madge, the the sixth uh, and last of my uh, ideas for how we might move this forward is is to really think differently about what we mean by harm 
Uh, we've had a relatively narrow definition uh, hitherto, which has largely been about physical harm. And I think we need to broaden that. We need to, I, I, I do fundamentally and firmly believe that an absence of dignity is harmful to patients. And I believe that an absence of equity is harmful to patients. Here we've seen some promising practices. Our colleagues at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Centre have this really nice way of um, measuring um, uh, dignity uh, or absence of dignity uh, and give it the same kind of prominence in their reporting as they give to the to incidents of physical harm. Uh, and so I think there's, there's much to learn from that. It's really also encouraging at how uh, people are feeling much more comfortable if you look at the details in the data here, much more comfortable about reporting incidents of absence of dignity. And then um, a really underexplored area is, is, I think, this idea that absence of equity is harmful. And it's, it's actually quite difficult to – we can find a lot of information that shows that there is unequal treatment. Um, but if you ask most system leaders, can they tell you – about disparities in harm? The, the honest answer is no. Uh, and we need to do something about that. We need to do something ar around understanding it more deeply. And these are deep-seated, long-standing problems that have been untackled, if that's a word, for long enough. And it's time to do something about that. So here, here's a quick reminder, Madge, of the six things that I think um, might give us a focus for this next horizon of our patient safety work. All right. Thank you so much, Derek. And we really did think it was worth going through all these things. Uh, great opportunity for everyone here today, whether or not you were able to hear first hear this stuff in Florida. And I'll just make two comments, then I want to hear Don's comments. One is that we'll be talking about this issue of disrespect uh, as a form of harm, emotional harm, at uh, used, uh, looking further into uh, Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center's program. They're clearly pioneering uh, this work, so that'll be up on the February 9th uh, WIHI. And uh, also... Uh, there is uh, <clears throat> many more resources uh, on IHI.org that we hope you'll explore, and we know that Vicki uh, Minden has captured that kind of uh, deepened some of these issues, uh, particularly also now um, around equity. One thing in the planning of that February 9th WIHI, I'll just share you as just a little teaser, is that in looking at incidents where patients felt disrespected and poorly communicated to or just things were sloppy, um, it's actually given more permission for staff to also talk about how they feel disrespected by their colleagues. So uh, it, it, it sort of it goes all which ways uh, in, in terms of this part of a safety culture. Don, some thoughts at all about uh, these six points and uh, how they strike you? Well, as Derek has been going through them, there's some really nice stuff coming in on the chat. So let me pick it up from the point of view of some of the people listening and what they've asked, and maybe Derek will join in response. Uh, Peg Graham uh, posted something on staff safety saying that we really need to get back to understanding you can't be safe for patients and unsafe for staff. I heard that point made 25 years ago by by, by uh, Paul O'Neill first, uh, who said it's just unacceptable. And I agree with that. I, th I think it, it belongs on the on the screen. He said you can't be excellent in some things. Excellence is comprehensive. We're not there. Staff safety is crucial, and it's at risk. 
uh, Madeline Basco asked uh, a related question about the relationship between time and safety. Her her question implies that she thinks that the pressures for productivity really are moving in against uh, keeping us safe. And yes, they are. And um, there's two kinds of compromise when the pressure gets too tough. One is uh, is production errors for more you know if i if i try to type on my computer keyboard at double the speed i'll make a lot more errors than if i slow down and the same is true in production there comes a point at which pace and safety are not uh, compatible and then even more in some ways when as production pressures rise uh, learning investments fall in in an unwise organization and that trade-off uh, is very, very costly. Pursuit of safety, like the pursuit of any dimension of quality, is a continuous learning process, and it takes it takes energy. Uh, Cheryl Petre um, asked about um, the tension between moving toward patient-centered measures like HCAPs and what patients think is safe and the hard uh, kind of facts on the ground about safety. I guess she doesn't say so, but her question implies she's worried that as, as we get more uh, patient voice, we might actually lose traction. I don't think so. I, I actually have come to believe that patients, carers, families, they they actually know more about safety than we do. They know things we don't. And so I'm very pleased by the movement toward more and more ways to get people to say what happened from your point of view, what did you notice. My email box is really often full of emails from people who have been in the hospital. They come home, they report safety hazards that they tried to to get people's attention to and couldn't. Okay, thank you, Don. Good thoughts. Derek, um, before we go to the chat, um, I do think it would be interesting just to hear some of your thoughts about um, we don't have time, of course, to go completely around the globe. IHI's working uh, in, in on many continents right now with various systems and countries on safety. But what would you say about Scotland? Um, are they? Is the are the the improvement community there at a very very different place around these issues, or is or is it very similar? No, I I, I think if we look globally, Madge, um, these countries have more in common than separate them, and. The challenge, the the state of play that Don described, the challenges for the next um, iteration of our work, I think are broadly similar similar across across all developed countries. Um, and in, indeed, there's a there's a live debate right now in Scotland about so what what's the next phase of this work look like. And uh, I hope as IHI strategic partners, they'll take some of our advice and use some of our prompting to um, to launch a new conversation about where next for patient safety. And I, I think exactly the same applies to, uh, to individual health systems in the U.S. The, the, this, this is a time for reflection. I, I, you made this point in your introduction. I think we are at an inflection point. There's a, and, and we have a choice. We can either choose to, to drive as much improvement as we can from, our, from the approaches that we've taken historically. Um, but if we always do what we've always done, We'll always get what we always got, and that is some progress, but incomplete. And uh, so I, I, I think the issues are broadly similar right across the globe. If we have international uh, listeners to this WHI, be keen to hear what they think. Did they recognise the analysis that Don gave of current state? Do they, do they believe that the kind of um, potential solutions that we've identified may apply in their country. 
Okay. So. All right. Very, very good. Well, we thank you, uh, Don and Derek, for all their opening remarks and setting the table here. Uh, Don already started to peel some things off the chat, and we're going to do that more uh, for both Don and Derek. And, uh, John, just give a quick reminder of everyone and make sure they how, how they chat in. Yeah, of course. Uh, if you have a question, make sure that it's addressed to all participants down in the chat. That way, Derek, Don, Madge, and I can see your questions. Uh, we see a lot of folks have already started asking some of those questions, but make sure that, that it's addressed to all participants down in the bottom right-hand corner of the chat. Okay, very good. All right, well, um, feel free. Don is closest to the computer screen, so he has an advantage over poor Derek, although maybe your eyesight is really good. I don't know. But uh, we're, we're closest. But let's let's start with this um, learning from successes. Somebody has a question here about that. And uh, this person, I'm going to go up a little closer. Actually, I'm going to switch my glasses in just a second. But using uh, the principle of needing to learn from our successes, which health systems do our speakers feel best exhibit the next wave of patient safety? So you get an opportunity if you can or want to call out um, some systems or even anything promising that you've seen, names or no names, but uh, interested, kind of, that whole notion of learning from successes, I think, is a provocative one. Yeah. So I guess the first thing I would say is that that failure is not a prerequisite to learn. So there is an opportunity to learn from uh, our successes. And I think most of the organizations who are deeply schooled in improvement science will recognize that chart that we saw earlier and and have some antidotes to that eternal focus on um, the bad apple and one end of the curve. Because as our improvement students will know, what we're trying to do through our improvement work is shift the whole curve uh, and reduce the variation. So there are a whole host of, of organizations, match who study deeply improvement science who are well-equipped to make this change. At the same time, they're all faced with um, a, a set of countervailing pressures that force them to that end of the, of, of the curve. So, you know, the, the, and so you, you can't look at these kind of issues, I think, without looking at a, a parallel set of issues that are about how do we make it easier for people to be transparent? Uh, how do we um, get a picture of our whole system that's not derived from a study of only part of it? Um, how, how do we create that learning system component of our new framework that, that makes sure that we um, we don't reinvent the, the wheel every time we have a, 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 an incident? Um, so I can think of a whole host of highly developed healthcare systems who are really well poised to be able to deal with these things. I don't, I don't think that what we're suggesting is any kind of um, un, unmanageable or undoable task. It's a, it's a building on what we already know. Um, it's, a, I think, a, a, a next phase uh, of uh, work. And those organizations who have invested in building quality improvement capacity, I think we'll be well set to make that jump. Mm-hmm. Thanks, Don. Um, first, looking outside healthcare for success, I'm a I'm a real fan of the work over the past two decades of of uh, Carl Wyke, Professor Wyke at at the uh, University of Michigan, and uh, and now Kathy Sutcliffe. Uh, one of the uh, commenters put in her the book. Um, 
managing the unexpected. I, I, I'll tell you, I think that should be required reading, and I think we need to understand what high reliability, look, reliability looks like under very stringent circumstances. One of Derek's uh, slides showed an aircraft carrier. I mean, I, you, when you really get to know how, how that safety is managed at that extremely risky, in that risky environment, you, you, you do see success, and, and we need to understand it. Around the U.S., uh, I've got to tip my hat to a few. Cincinnati Children's Hospital Medical Center really is taking this seriously, and they're, they're developing a cadre, especially of young people, who are really, really uh, familiar with the, the, the deep issues in safety. Uh, Kaiser Permanente, I also want to acknowledge, they, they use what Maureen Bizzignano calls the dosing formula. This is trying to understand what everybody at every level really does need to understand, and they're not, they're not approaching it in a, in a, in a simple-minded way. They're, they're really getting to the details as to what people need to know. Um, and uh, I'll give one other. I had the great honor of chairing a National Academy of Medicine Committee on Military Trauma Care recently, and I spent a year and a half working with colleagues who were involved in in rescue of people injured in the military. Uh, it is absolutely stunning what that system has achieved, and it's been done really through the kind of high reliability, open, constant learning system that we that we now know is at the heart of any improvement. So uh, I, I would suggest people might want to take a look there, and well, I can actually work with Vicky to post some some articles on uh, on how um, military medicine under really austere and difficult positions have produced rep- results no one ever would have thought possible. Speaking of kind of military environment, I wonder if that relates to one of the questions which has to do with how do we get away from just always viewing things retrospectively? Uh, how do we get into more real-time kind of learning and evaluation and also, of course, uh, prospective? I don't know. If Derek, we'll start with you. So I w- in any examination of of that aspect of what we've been talking about today, I, I would go to Charles Vincent's work. I think Charles has done a really nice job of articulating how, do, how we can move from simply asking, were we safe yesterday, to asking, are we safe today and will we be safe tomorrow? Uh, and a lot of our, um, a lot of these, these new approaches that, that you see around safety huddles and um, and bringing people together to take a not just a retrospective but a prospective look at will we be safe um, are showing promising results as a as part of the route map towards higher reliability. Okay. But, Who is Charles Vincent? So Charles Vincent is a UK academic. Okay. And uh, r- really uh, has done a lot of work with Rene Am- Amalberti, who's another ah, yes. fantastic thinker on this kind of work. But okay. uh, there's a, again, I'm sure Vicky we'll will it. be able to find it. Yep. There's a mm-hmm. Health Foundation um, uh, publication that Charles helped to write, which talks about that, that move towards greater proactivity and some of the practical things that organizations can do if that's a direction in which they're headed. Okay. This speaks to my earlier point also of getting back to the science. Renee Halperity, Charles Vincent, these are masters of the underlying sciences, empirically based in most cases. And uh, if we're going to be serious about safety, we need to study it and learn what people like that know. Fran Griffin, I think, put in that comment about moving from 
retrospection to real time uh, that Fran and David Klassen have been working on the use of electronic records. We have electronic records now. Let's use them. And they can actually be used in forms of uh, forward-looking and, 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 and real-time monitoring, but they're not yet. And David Klassen and Fran Griffin know how to do that. It's not that hard to understand. I mean, if I, I say, look, I'm a safe driver. Every time I hit a tree, I know why. No, that's not a safe driver. I, I'm learning to drive a car not to hit trees. And there's a big difference between looking back at what happened and looking ahead at how to make it not happen. Okay, thank you. Your mention of Fran Griffin, a wonderful uh, safety expert, a real treasure for this country, worked, has worked with IHI, and also, of course, David Klassen, and that does remind me that I did want to also give a shout-out to our colleagues at the National Patient Safety Foundation who are tuned to the show today and all their important work, some of which we alluded to earlier. Um, what about sepsis? There's a couple of people who are having a back-and-forth here about whether – we're making any progress there is that a i don't know if we can call it a success story but does that and does that signify anything that we're doing differently well that is one area i think where if we look to scotland we'll see we'll learn something so they had a program called socket to sepsis socket to sepsis socket to sepsis <laughs> okay uh, and in the they combined there the the strongly evidence-based approaches that we uh, now deeply understand, the, the sepsis six, the, the bundles of care that we can put in place, with a social campaign. So the, the, there really were socks involved. They were uh, red and white striped, and um, anybody who, who um, types into your search engine of choice socket to sepsis will find these and so that that combination of uh, evidence-based interventions improvement signs and uh, creating some kind of social movement got really quite remarkable results significant improvements in uh, care significant reductions in the incidence of of sepsis and over a relatively short time frame Uh, but I think there are, there are now a number of success stories emerging about how we can tackle that very real problem. Okay, thank you. Um, interesting question about how we really get from safety one to safety two, and I think that's going to be the challenge. Uh, and certainly we'd love to hear your ideas also in the chat. I was intrigued with a question, uh, Derek, where somebody said that, that their organization was at least on the path of doing some of the six things that you talked about. This person wondered, is there any, you know, really disruptive, if you really wanted to kind of get everybody's attention in, in some way or a sort of disruptive innovation, I don't want to put anyone on the spot here, but is there anything that occurs to either one of you uh, that would sort of shake things up? Just curious. This is a, a I'm, I'm channeling somebody here from the chat. Yeah. So I, I think this is a classic area where um, the the really important thing is going to be to start. So uh, you know we could we could do some more analysis of whether these are exactly the the right six things. And when I spoke at the forum, I was very upfront. These are this this is one n of one. These are my impressions about. Uh, Based on what I hear from um, IHI partners across the globe, what I hear from the acknowledged experts in the field, but they're one person's analysis of what it might take to move us to this new horizon, I would just pick one and get started. Uh, there's, um, 
you know, I, I don't think there's any, none of this is is area where we need a whole slew of creativity, new innovation. This, this is about applying what we know to a new set of um, interventions. It's about um, a shift in mindset, and it's about uh, 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 the leadership prioritisation and, uh, frankly, a cultural shift in the way in which we lead safety, which I think uh, is is probably the thing that will that will um, regulate whether whether we're successful here or not. Mm -hmm. If we can change the culture, we've got a great chance. Mm -hmm. If we can't, we're stuck. Mm -hmm. Don, uh, I absolutely agree with what Derek said. This is this is not sitting around with theory. This is getting to work. Two two suggestions I'd have. If you're a CEO listening, or a board member, or a senior leader. Uh, I have two suggestions. One is, and this goes back to my own history in the field, study a case yourself. Don't delegate it. I have seen transformative thinking, tears in the eyes of executives who finally say, I'm going to find this this patient who was injured to death, an infection, uh, something that really went wrong, or now indignity, and I will not delegate the investigation. I'm going to talk with everyone, the nurses, the doctors, the patient, the family, and reconstruct it till I have the total narrative. You cannot do that and leave unchanged. It's uh, it, it provides a lot of the will, I think, that really is needed. Approach it with science. Approach it. Prepare yourself because your first instinct is to ask who did this, and that's not the right question. It's what happened and what's this, and what am I responsible for? The second uh, – this is something that I've done a few times in, in the past. Get someone from another industry that has to be safe. I did this with the director of NASA at one point. We walked into the uh, emergency room of a very large teaching hospital. I spent actually ended up spending four hours with him. And as we walked through, he kept careful notes on what he saw. The question was, you know, would this spaceship get to the moon? Are, you know, how how safe is this? You will be stunned by the by by honest. Uh, observation from experts who aren't from healthcare but really do understand safety and maybe that's a way for a board and uh, executive to kind of restart. <laughs> what about safety culture? Uh, there are a couple comments in here about uh, all uh, hopes and ideas about nurses uh, becoming more empowered with a safety agenda. Uh, do you each think that has happened? Um, what's your sense of where we're at with culture? Uh, we talked a little bit before about respect, um, at which can lack of it can certainly disrupt that culture. Um, any any thoughts about that? So I, th I think there is variation there, uh, uh, like uh, almost any other aspect of this that, that, that you um, – even within individual um, systems and indeed hospitals, you often see variation in the safety culture. It's uh, it's localized and contextual, uh, and it requires um, local managers to be um, and uh, uh, leaders of individual units and hospitals to be firstly committed to it, uh, secondly willing to listen. Uh, and thirdly, um, prepared to engage in a in a dialogue about what what they hear, um, and 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 the bit I think most often that's missing is the is the listening piece. 
how, how, how am I getting intelligence about exactly what is the culture in each of the um, wards and the and the units? Um, and uh, how am I how am I signalling to the organisation my my real deep desire to hear exactly what's going on, rather than to hear that everything is okay? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so there are some there are some technical things managed that make that easier, like huddles and you know actively engaging staff around um, performance boards that look at. Our improvement over time, um, but m- most of this comes down to hearts and minds. Mm-hmm. And just as people were commenting earlier on the importance of um, physical safety for staff, so too is there an importance is it important to ensure emotional and psychological safety for staff. It's the kind of um, foundation of all of this. If staff do not feel that it's safe to speak up, they will not speak up. Mm-hmm. I want to say, you know, I really do feel with the chat that's going on, uh, as Derek and Don are, are contributing their thoughts, I think this is what we're do- We're sort of building safety too, <laughs> and uh, safety, <laughs> second wave or whatever, and T-O-O. And I also see a tremendous number of resources being uh, mentioned. Uh, Vicky's trying to do an amazing job of keeping up with a lot of links, but thank you all for mentioning these things. Again, they'll be captured in a resource document that we post to our website, but you'll be prompted to download as much of this as you want uh, when you get off today's show. I'm going to turn to you, Don, for a question that came up earlier. I don't know if it was repeated concerns uh, that this may be a very, this may be the hardest year of all uh, in the United States in particular with the new administration to kind of stay the course and stay focused on uh, some of these issues. We have a wonderful idea here that we really need a, a big social movement around safety that involves uh, you know, staff and uh, leaders and the public and uh, you know, really getting behind this in a, a big way and I can see why at least it seems that some people are thinking, boy Boy, this is going to be a tough one. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Nobody knows what's going to happen. Uh, I will say that uh, uh, federal agencies, Department of Defense, the VA, uh, and CMS uh, have been uh, real leaders you know, for now for well over a decade, two decades, going on two decades in the safety movement. The VA really broke it all open years ago uh, with Ken Kaiser's leadership. The Defense Department has done brilliant work on engineering and CMS used both incentives and support. So the Partnership for Patients is alleged to have saved uh, hundreds of thousands of lives and billions of dollars by investing in safety. We don't know if that kind of federal leadership is still going to be in place. I certainly hope it is, but it's, it is under threat. What can I say? This is, this, someone better do it. And uh, maybe this moves responsibility back to the level of organizations, states perhaps, Medicaid systems, in states, but most of all, organizations and clinicians. Uh, it really is up to you now more than ever. The good news is that that, that it, safety is a very adaptive, important improvement in organizations. It feels better. It feels better not to be afraid. It feels better to be more reliable. Uh, and it feels better not to have the excess cost of constant error. So what, maybe the, the answer is we're going to have to localize it. Like I feel about localizing a lot of issues of social justice and, and compassion in society. Uh, we have to own it if others won't. I agree with that. I think this is um, – so I, I take the point exactly that this, these are um, – we live in a, 
in complex times. These are a challenging environment. There's a lot of uncertainty. Who, who knows how all of that will pan out? Um, but there's one thing that we could all, I'm pretty sure, agree on, and that is that um, one way of, of um, adding value throughout that process of, of, um, of change is to get back to focusing on the things that really matter to patients. Uh, and there is, I think, hope around working on patient safety. There's an, a sense of engagement and um, optimism that can be created by uh, coming together to improve something together. And I, in some ways, I think there, there's never going to be a better time to do this because it's, it's something that we can all agree on. It's something that every single one of us, regardless of our um, our belief system, our, um, our political preferences, our uh, position in the organization, we can all agree that um, patient safety is our number one priority. And here's an opportunity to prove it. I'll just say in my new role at IHI as a senior fellow and a member of the board, I I just want to credit Derek. I think Derek has not a day passes in discussion of strategy or investment at IHI in which he isn't talking about this re energizing of safety is crucial to the to the future and what this organization is going to put a lot of its energies uh, energies into and I uh, that feels just right to me mm-hmm. engaging with patients and families I think it's it's hard to find anyone who disagrees with that on a whole number of fronts and yet I do think this is an evolving area in terms of and particularly how it makes a difference in safety you uh, You know, I think people kind of get it for sure when you're talking about respect and sort of improvements on communication and just the general environment. And I don't know if either one of you have any examples or what comes to mind, um, even from recent experiences people have had. But what makes what what what's a way to illustrate that, Derek? Um, So I think our current systems are not well designed to enable the patient's voice to be heard. some of this, I think, is back to Don's point about the pace at which we're working. So we're, you know, and I think some of it um, may have something to do with our obsession with um, measuring stuff and recording data, and we forget that there's a patient there who um, we need to listen to and, and care for. Um, so. I think this is a systems problem. It's not a. It's not. A, it's not about our individual staff members. It's about the system in which they're. We're asking them to work. Um, but can you just imagine how um, motivating it would be for patients to think that their their uh, perspective on their safety was being listened to? What about all of the assets of family members who are um, sitting with the patient? If our waiting time arrangements, our, um, sorry, our visiting arrangements allow for that, which sometimes they do and sometimes they don't, which is an, maybe that's a subject for another WIHI. Um, but what what an underutilised asset that is for us. That's a, that's someone who could be on the care team that's not currently on the care team. Uh, and um, and then there is, I think, something too about who's going to ensure the patient safety, the patient is safe after their discharge from the hospital uh, and that you know safety across the whole continuum is something we've only just started to examine and understand 
So it, 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 it just seems to me as if it's an obvious thing to do that we ought to redesign our systems so that patients can contribute, family members can be utilised as an asset, and uh, and we can get uh, the, the new expanded care team all heading in the right direction. Thanks. All right, John. Yeah, thanks, Madge. So we uh, talked a little bit about the uh, safety framework, um, and to pivot off that, I just wanted to bring up that IHI is introducing a new two-day conference designed to bring healthcare teams back together to learn about making safety a system priority and a property of the system, from ambulatory to acute and post-acute care, using the framework for safe, reliable, and effective care that we talked about today. IHI has developed and honed this framework for more than 10 years with input from over 2,900 patient safety officers, many of whom learn patient safety right here at IHI resulting in an execution strategy that can become the backbone for real transformation. Um, we're going to be holding this conference in Cleveland April 3rd through 4th um, this year, 2017. It's insurance pa- ensuring patient safety across the system. And you can see I put a nice vanity link down here at the bottom of the slide. You can't click on it through the WebEx, but it is IHI.org slash patient safety conference. All right. Thanks so much, John. I, I want to, again, underscore uh, that this particular chat today is a real example of what we figure out when we're we're convened and talking uh, so many interesting ideas, global safety alerts people are talking about here. Thank you all for uh, sharing uh, some of the links. And uh, I often on WHI we're talking about trying to learn from one another and learning across borders and certainly hope that's the case. Uh, here, or, or evidenced here, I want to just give uh, Don and Derek a time, um, some minutes for some wrap-up um, uh, comments. Don and I had the nice privilege of going over to the Cambridge Health Alliance uh, this week and hearing a lot about co-production. Uh, really, it's, it's yet another way to describe, you know, how providers and patients uh, uh, we're all interacting in this healthcare thing and either we're sort of interested in hearing from patients or not and the knowledge that uh, can be brought to bear uh, on design. Now, that's often or sometimes talked about a lot with chronic health issues, but I think there's much to learn, um, you know, around safety uh, issues uh, as well. So, we're, we're here, that's for sure. I mean, uh, just a reminder with all the work that we're doing and telling you about, and you're all there, and I think this conversation, it is a bit of a slog. I mean, you have to sort of say, you know, it's rich, it's got, we've done a lot for a few decades now, Um on optimistic, uh, you know, you, you've definitely you got a few more gray hairs than you did. <laughs> I'm always optimistic. We know so much about what to do. Um, I think uh, the regrouping that Derek's calling for, the safety, the new safety, uh, let's get really serious about it. The two things that have come up in the chat and the conversation that I guess I would. I would try to nail down. The first is uh, leaders wake up. You really are going to have to make a choice here, unless you executive board, uh, senior executive, uh, senior clinicians uh, make it strategic. It won't be strategic. It's not automatic. Even as hard as the workforce wants to be safe, it, it, and uh, you, you know, you, you you got this burden when you got your job. And I really hope people go back and think about it. I know you're busy. I know there's a lot on your plate. I understand that. But now take a look at what duty calls. Uh, the second is about the patient point. I, I, I must – I want to briefly mention that we – I was at a, one of the IHI conferences where there was a talk by a patient uh, or a father of patients named Thomas uh, 
uh, Flores, T-O-M-A-S, Flores, F-L-O-R-E-S. I would urge you to Google him. Thomas is an engineer in Mexico. His first child had kernicterus, which shouldn't happen ever, but it happens. Uh, he described in his talk a heart-wrenching story about their second child, as he and his wife absolutely recognized that this baby was developing jaundice and kernicterus also and couldn't get attention, could not get people to credit them as part of the system of pursuit of safety. That is unacceptable. And so, CEO, wake up. This is your job, and you have an army out there to help you. It's the patients and families, and get, let's get let's give them voice and a chance to enlist in the uh, in the quest. It'll never be over, Madge. Never. This is not. If you're approaching safety as been there, done that, tick the box, project over, let's move on. You don't understand. This is never ending work. Derek, um, I guess just three closing thoughts from me, Madge. Firstly, um, don't forget to celebrate the successes. You know, Don started us off by reminding us that we've made a lot of progress. So um, that celebration of that progress is, an, is important. Uh, second, um, then we need to shift our mindset. So that, again, that's my, my second, I think, requirement here is this is going to require us to think differently in order to do differently. Um, and I think one of the mindset shifts we're going to have to make is that our current temptation is um, to deal with these issues, issue by issue, problem by problem. Uh, and uh, that kind of patient safety whack-a-mole is just not going to work in the future. We need to be thinking systematically about this. Uh, and my third uh, ask of the audience would be to get started. Choose, choose one of these uh, new areas that looks attractive to you. Uh, get started with your local work. And, uh, and please tell us here at IHI how you're doing because we're always really keen to hear about your local successes. Um, so that we can bring those to a bigger audience. Absolutely. All right. Well, I want to thank um, Derek Feely, IHI's president and CEO, and Don Berwick, uh, currently IHI's President Emeritus, Senior Fellow, etc. Uh, thank you for your wisdom. I think a lot of people really uh, appreciated so much uh, your remarks, and I can't thank our audience enough uh, for all your comments, resources, uh, engagement. Uh, this is what WIHI is all about, and this is the kind of forum we're trying to have, and onward with uh, Safety 2, and we'll see uh, what that starts to look like. We'll, we'll certainly come back. I'm amazed we got through this hour and we didn't talk about the electronic health record and whether that's helping or hindering and it's kind of a matter of both but we've talked about the EHR and other programs and we'll get back. We'll keep sort of walking through these topics and do check out the safety conference that is coming up in Cleveland in the beginning of April. Um, I think it's going to be uh, an opportunity uh, to really dive into this framework uh, uh, stuff and you've got the likes of Derek's going to be there, Carol Harrigan's going to be there, Alan Frankel and others. All right, so thank you all. Next up on WIHI on February 9th, as I said, uh, the show is titled Practicing Respect and Preventing Emotional Harm, and we're going to take a look at this interesting work going on at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center right in our own backyard. They also recently presented at the National Forum, so we're going to share a lot of resources, very dynamic group. A reminder, as I've said, you can download the chat and any slides uh, from this discussion today, and uh, any questions 
whatsoever, any confusion, please email info at IHI.org and we'll try to clear things up. By tomorrow morning, John does a wonderful job of getting our archive page up. We then load up the pod, the audio to, uh, as a podcast. So we hope, uh, you'll look for that. And, uh, we've got a great group of people who help us make WIHI possible. You don't always see them, but there they are, uh, looking younger by the day, as far as I can tell. Hey. We, <laughs> we've got this wonderful group, John Gothier, Matt Morris, Jameson Case, Vicki Minden, Jane Rossner, Val Weber, and Haley Ladd. Only Val doesn't have her picture there, but that's another story. Uh, but uh, she shares an office with me. Uh, it is my privilege to host a program that's about spirited learning and improving health and patient care most of all. So for the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, I'm so glad you all tuned in today. I'm Madge Kaplan. Have a good afternoon. <laughs>